Now, if you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. You got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong. But if you all stick together, boys, it won't be long. You get shorter hours, better working conditions, vacations with pay, take your kids to the seashore. I won't be able to keep on revising strikes forever. But my fondest hope is that others will continue recreating strike, incorporating new learning to contribute to the self-organization and self-liberation of working people. The first recorded strike in history took place on November 14th, circa 1170 BCE, in the royal necropolis at Daira Medina during the 29th year of the reign of Pharaoh Ramesses III. Today is the last day of what's come to be known as Striketober. As tens of thousands of American workers walked out or threatened to walk out across the country. Whether these strikes have been caused by the labor shortage, the pandemic, or just people fed up with working crappy jobs for low pay, no benefits, and few, if any, job protections, or all of the above, it's clear that workers have reached a historic a breaking point. Back in May, we featured an excerpt from the April 6th Symposium celebrating the 50th anniversary of Strike, Jeremy Brecker's classic labor history. On today's show, we bring you the man himself, Jeremy Brecker, at that same symposium, talking not only about how his book came to be, but why labor history itself matters. It's not only a delightful talk, but inspirational too, as Jeremy shares his thoughts about the future of our history of worker struggle. Which brings me to part two of today's show, which is from the new podcast, Strike. And I would argue that podcasts like this are very much a part of carrying Jeremy's work forward. Now, I was aware that the first recorded strike in human history took place in Egypt in 1170 B.C., but that's really about all I knew. Strike podcast host Sarah Graham has done an impressive deep dive into this ancient strike and manages to not only explore it in fascinating detail, but to connect it back to today's struggles. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And on today's Labor History in 2... This day in labor history, ghosts and goblins are going door to door to gather up candy. But did you know that some of that candy is made by union workers? I'm Chris Garlock. And that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Hope you enjoy it. Here's the show. He'll call out the police, the National Guard. They'll tell you it's a crime to have a union card. They'll raid your meeting. They'll hit you on the head. They'll call every one of you a damn red unpatriotic. Japanese spies. Sabotaging national defense. But out at Ford, here's what they found, and out at Vaulty, here's what they found, and out at Alice Chalmers, here's what they found, and down at Bethlehem, here's what they found, that if you don't let red baiting break you up, and if you don't let stool pigeons break you up, and if you don't let vigilantes break you up, and if you don't let race hatred break you up, you'll win. What I mean, take it easy, but take it. Here's Jeremy Brecker, author of Strike, at the April 6, 2021 symposium, marking the 50th anniversary of the publication of this classic labor history? I think the real answer to the question, 
why does labor history matter? What's the point? Is really that history and experience of working people is something that has been largely hidden, largely suppressed. When I uh, finished Strike, I had never met a labor historian, and I had just found a few books in the college library, a short shelf, and I was astonished at what I discovered, strike waves of millions of workers, shutdowns of whole cities, nationwide general strikes, seizures of vast industrial complexes, and even armed battles with artillery and tanks. And uh, this is things that I never uh, learned in a history class, uh, even um, Having been, already been a social activist at that point, I didn't learn them in the movement. And ability for us to know this history, I think, is important, as Sarah says, for our identity as working people, for understanding that, and equally for understanding the kinds of power that workers are capable of acquiring through solidarity and through collective action. I was asked also to talk a little bit about the background of strike and especially its development over the decades. What does it mean to live with a book like this for 50 years? And the original purpose I had in writing strike, when I discovered the, the amazing stories that are there, that were there, but that were practically unknown, was first of all, to reveal the radical traditions of workers to working people and make it available to them as a, a way of having a new understanding of their reality and the potentials that they had through action. But also at that time, we had a radical student movement. We had the anti-Vietnam War movement. We had the civil rights movement. And we actually had a burgeoning militant labor movement, which you can find in one of the older chapters of Stripe described. But these forces were highly divided from each other. And a central part of the purpose of my writing Strike was to build a bridge between those forces and find a way that they could understand by understanding the history of working people, understanding also how that fitted in with the opposition to war, how it fitted into the environmental crisis that we were already experiencing at that time, the racial crisis that was front and center then as it is today, and give people a way of understanding, as Sarah said, their commonalities over all of those differences. The other key point was to show where the power is and to show that dependence of employers and of society on working people, on ordinary folks, was the thing that actually established the basis for power because, as the old song said, the boss would be mighty lonely if everyone decided to walk out on him. So conveying that in a concrete historical way was another part of the central purpose of strike. It was never meant to be a comprehensive history of American labor. It was focused on two central things. One, rank and file self-organization. What did it mean for working people to organize themselves from below? And secondly, what today we would call getting out of silos, division of workers into 
separate trades, separate, what used to be called by the Wobblies, the American separation of labor ability to easily determine one group of workers against another. And similarly, different groups in society turn race against race, native born against immigrant, and all the other ways in which we are play, our divisions are played on. Those are really the two core themes of strike. I have had the privilege of updating it just about once a decade over the last 50 years. And so I've also built, as we go along, a ongoing history as it happens, so to speak, of the development of the working class and development of the problems and challenges that working people faced. And obviously, I can't summarize the whole history of that, but one aspect of it is the development of structural changes, globalization, deindustrialization, de and the other changes that have completely changed the context in which working people have to struggle, but also major changes in workers' strategies uh, going global, the adoption of Gandhian nonviolent action techniques, corporate campaigns, community labor and alliances, and I could, of course, go on. When I came to writing the revisions of strike in the 21st century, we had faced a very substantial decline in conventional strikes, substantial, like a tenth of what they had been historically. But what we found as we began looking at it was the rise of what I called the mini revolts of the 21st century. And certainly, just to take two examples, because they're represented here, the teacher strikes that, and more broadly, the whole movement for public education that they were the tip of the spear for was a mass strike on a historic scale and continues to be a mass strike historic scale as we battle the effects of the COVID pandemic. And the ending of the government shutdown which was a colossal and unique exercise of worker power. And there's a dozen or more other examples that I developed in the last three chapters of Strikes that are directed to this more recent period and really represent new inventions of how to engage in class struggle in a time when it's very difficult, though still not impossible and necessary to win strikes. So let me just wrap up by saying that the greatest thrill connected with Strike is that each decade, I've had the opportunity to meet new generations of people, especially young people, who have found something of value in Strike. And mostly I've met them in elevated places, church basements in most cases. But it's great to be in this situation today where I can virtually meet many other people some of whom are old labor history scholars and labor history buffs, but I'm sure some of you are people who are just discovering labor history and are ready to pick up the banner of the struggles and carry them forward. The other thing I want to say is that I hope the story of Strike the Book isn't over. As Judy mentioned at the beginning, I'm doing a regular series of commentaries uh, called Strike, Commentaries on Solidarity and Survival on the LNS website. And that's one way that some of this story is going forward. And I just finished actually a mini book 
uh, mini web book called People Power in the Coronavirus Depression, which carries forward the kind of study that's done in Strike to deal with the struggles of the past year, which will be posted on the LNS website within a few weeks. And just published two companion books, Save the Humans, Common Preservation in Action, and Common Preservation in a Time of Mutual Destruction, which are an attempt to sum up what I've learned about social movements and social change over the last 50 years, both in the, the labor piece of it, but also in the other work I've done on globalization and other kinds of conditions and the way that various kinds of social movements have responded to them. So let me just say that some of you probably have heard I just passed my 75th birthday and I won't be able to keep on revising Strike forever. But my fondest hope is that others will continue recreating Strike, incorporating new learning to contribute to the self-organization and self-liberation of working people. Now, if you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. You got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong. But if you all stick together, boys, it won't be long. You get shorter hours, better working conditions, vacations with pay, take a kid to the seashore. It ain't quite this simple, so I better explain just why you got to ride on the union train. Cause if you wait for the boss to raise your pay, we'll all be awaiting till judgment day, we'll all be buried. Gone to heaven. St. Peter will be the straw boss then. Now you know you're underpaid, but the boss says you ain't. He speeds up the work till you're about to faint. You may be down and out, but you ain't beaten. You can pass out a leaflet and call a meeting. Talk it over. Speak your mind. Decide to do something about it. Of course, the boss may persuade some poor damn fool to go to your meeting and act like a stool, but you can always tell a stool, though, that's a fact. He's got a yaller streaker running down his back. He doesn't have to stool. He'll always get along on what he takes out of blind men's cups. You got a union now, and you're sitting pretty. Put some of the boys on the steering committee. The boss won't listen when one guy squawks, but he's got to listen when the union talks. He'd better be mighty lonely. Everybody decide to walk out on him. Suppose they're working you so hard it's just outrageous and they're paying you all starvation wages. You go to the boss and the boss would yell, before I raise your pay, I'd see you all in hell. Well, he's puffing a big cigar, feeling mighty slick because he thinks he's got your union licked. Well, he looks out the window and what does he see but a thousand pickets and they all agree he's a bastard. Unfair! Slave driver. Betty beats his wife. Now, boys, you've come to the hardest time. The boss will try to bust your picket line. He'll call out the police, the National Guard. They'll tell you it's a crime to have a union card. They'll raid your meeting. They'll hit you on the head. They'll call every one of you a goddamn red unpatriotic. Japanese spies. Sabotaging national defense. 
But out at Ford, here's what they found. And out at Vaulty, here's what they found. And out at Alice Chalmers, here's what they found. And down at Bethlehem, here's what they found. That if you don't let red baiting break you up, and if you don't let stool pigeons break you up, and if you don't let vigilantes break you up, and if you don't let race hatred break you up, you'll win. What I mean, take it easy, but take it. Hello, my name is Sarah Graham, and you're listening to Strike, a history podcast. We are impoverished. All the supplies for us that are from the treasury, the granary, and the storehouse have been allowed to be exhausted. The stone is not light. One and a half hundred weight of grain has been taken from us. We are dying. We do not live at all. Scribe Neferhotep, circa 1174 BCE. It may seem unusual to begin a podcast about the history of strikes in the late Bronze Age. Strike actions are usually understood to have emerged as a political phenomenon with the advent of the Industrial Revolution and the concomitant emergence of a distinguishable working class. While it is true that New Kingdom social structures and labor practices were profoundly different than those we experience today, the particularities of the first recorded strike may help us draw the boundaries of what we mean by the word strike and what elements are required to identify one. The first recorded strike in history took place on November 14th, circa 1170 BCE, in the royal necropolis at Dair al-Medina during the 29th year of the reign of Pharaoh Ramesses III. It is difficult to know exactly when and how the situation began. A papyrus now in Turin, as well as some broken pottery, provides scattered notations on the series of events. Early in the year, a scribe named Amenacht announced to the village of workmen and artisans in the necropolis the late delivery of rations from the state. On this day, 20 days have elapsed in the month and rations have not been given to us. Amenacht then walked to the mortuary temple of Horemheb, just north of the temple being built for Ramses III himself. There, he procured 46 bushels of wheat for the workmen, delivered two days later. This is the first record we have of issues with the supply of rations for the workmen of the necropolis. In the fall of the same year, the question of rations would burst into the first labor strike recorded in human history. Scribe Amenat describes the scene. Year 29, second month of the second season, day 10. On this day occurred the crossing of the five walls of the necropolis by the crew, saying, we are hungry. 18 days have elapsed in the month, and they sat down at the back of the temple. Two gangs of artisans working on the tombs laid down their tools and marched together to one of the royal mortuary temples, where they staged what we would now describe as a sit-in demonstration. We are hungry, the workmen proclaimed. 18 days have elapsed this month without payment in grain rations. When approached by the two chief artisans and the scribe Amenacht, the workers called them over and said they had grievances to state to the pharaoh. The next day, the workers of the necropolis continued their strike, this time marching to the Ramesseum, the mortuary temple of Ramses II, one of the most celebrated pharaohs in Egyptian history. 
the chief of police, the Medjay Montmose, told the workers that he would bring the mayor of Thebes to see them. While Montmose appears to have relayed the events in the necropolis to the mayor, the official's response has been lost to us as there is a tear in the papyrus containing the record of events. Regardless of the mayor's attitude toward the situation, the artisans continued their strike into the third day. The workmen spent the night at the gate of the Ramesseum in the shadow of enormous statues of Amenhotep. This prompted the temple priests to take statements of the men's grievances the next day. The men said to the priests, It was because of hunger and because of thirst that we came here. There is no clothing, no ointment, no fish, and no vegetables. Send to Pharaoh, our good lord, about it, and send to the vizier, our superior, that we may be provided for. Once these statements had been taken, the rations the workmen were demanding were provided, albeit now six weeks late. The following day, the men gathered at the police headquarters, the fortress of the metropolis, to demand their payment for the current month as well. Police Chief Montmose addressed the workers, telling them that if they remained orderly, he would lead them to the temple and allow them to protest. Look, I will tell you my opinion. Go and gather your tools, seal your doors, bring your wives and your children, and I will lead you to the temple and I will let you settle there. On the eighth day of the strike, the rations were delivered in full. The issues relating to grain distribution were not permanently remedied, however, and the workmen staged multiple strike actions and protests over the coming weeks and months. The next walkout, occurring less than one month after the previous strike, ended in violence. When the scribes and foremen arrived at the temple to bring the men back to the necropolis, an artisan named Mose cried out, By Ammon and by the ruler whose power is greater than death, if they take me up from here today, he shall lie down after having cursed his tomb, and I won't. Because this was blasphemy, Mose was beaten by the elders of the necropolis. The workers walked out again a short time later, passing by the walls to shouts of condemnation from the foremen and the scribes. When the officials arrived at the location of their protest, the workmen had organized themselves and appointed two spokesmen. Scribed Amanakt records the encounter. Thus said Kenena, son of Ruta, and Hay, son of Hoy, We will not return. Tell your superiors. Verily, it was not because we hungered that we passed the walls. We have an important statement to make. Evil is done in this place of the Pharaoh. The workmen then made accusations of corruption against members of the administration of the necropolis, who they held responsible for the problems with the rations. Vizier Toh, second only to the Pharaoh himself, heard about the strikes while on tour of the kingdom. He declined to visit the strikers himself and sent the head of the Theban police to deliver a message. It was not because there was nothing to bring you that I did not come. As for you saying, do not give away our ration, do I, the vizier, give in order to take away? If it happened that there was nothing, even in the granaries, I have given you that which I have found. This message was followed by an announcement by one of the city scribes that half of the owed ration would be delivered on the spot, distributed by the scribe himself. A few days later, with their wage of rations still in arrears, 
the foreman of the workmen's gangs decided to step in. He told the crew to bring their rations down to the harbor so that the visiting officials could see the truth of their claims. As soon as the workmen collected their rations from the scribe, they turned to take them down to the river, but were stopped by scribe Amenacht. He stated, I have given you two bushels of wheat this hour. Do not go to the harbor. If you do, I will put you in the wrong in any court to which you may go. In light of this threat, the workers decided not to go to the harbor and return to work. But this state of affairs did not last. Within weeks, the workmen were protesting at the temples yet again. While encamped at the temple of Menepta, the mayor of Thebes passed by and they shouted out, We are hungry! The mayor then intervened, supplying the artisans with 50 bushels of grain, with the caveat that these rations were only meant as a stopgap until Pharaoh's administration managed to reorganize the regular supply. How the mayor would obtain these bushels appeared to be a matter of some consternation. It appears that the grain promised to the workers by the mayor was part of the divine offerings to Ramses II, and there were threats by the workers to lodge a complaint with the high priest of Amman against the mayor, whether for withholding or diverting rations to the temple, or stealing rations from the temple to distribute them is unclear. The papyrus ends here. We do not know how the conflict ended or what happened to the parties involved. We do know that soon after these events, the new kingdom itself fell into a period of decline. So what was happening around the world at the time of the necropolis strikes? The late Bronze Age was a time of transition for societies all around the Mediterranean Sea. For some of these civilizations, this transition was violent, sudden, and led to total collapse. Only a few powerful states, the New Kingdom of Egypt included, survived. A variety of explanations have been explored for the Bronze Age collapse. Traditional histories point to the high number of invasions and wars in the era, as well as the high costs incurred because of them. During the reign of Ramses III, Egypt was constantly at war. Twice during his tenure, in the 5th and the 11th years, Egypt held off invasions from Libya. A confederation of seafaring peoples harried many of the civilizations of the Mediterranean, and Egypt was no exception. The Sea Peoples, as they came to be known in early Egyptology, were defeated in two great battles during the eighth year of Ramses III's reign. More recently, it has been suggested that the eruption of the Icelandic volcano Hekla, later described by a medieval monk as the gateway to hell, caused an 18-year span of global cooling. The volcano erupted with the force of Vesuvius, spewing 7.3 cubic kilometers of ash and rock into the atmosphere, causing the hemisphere to cool. This cooling may have contributed to the grain shortages that led to the strikes. We do know that grain prices skyrocketed under the rule of Ramsey's successors and that this contributed to the ultimate decline and fall of New Kingdom dynasties. It is also possible that the problem that led to the necropolis strike was not a true shortage of grain, but rather the outcome of economic and administrative changes in Egypt itself. Archaeologists estimate that the Temple of Horemheb, where scribe Amenacht first procured rations for the workmen before the strikes, had grain magazines that could hold sufficient resources to last the village 10 years. Many of the temples in the complex had similar storage granaries. 
So why the sudden inability to pay the workmen on time? One theory suggests that growing corruption by local officials, combined with the declining importance of the city of Thebes, led to poor administration of the grain rations. One small temple lost 90% of its grain revenue to embezzlement by corrupt administrators, a crime which went undetected for 10 years. The workmen themselves made accusations that city foremen and scribes were stripping stone from royal tombs for their own gain. Certainly, political corruption was a growing issue throughout the New Kingdom during this era. The tomb builders of the necropolis were skilled and favored artisans. They were not slaves, nor were they indentured servants. They led a life secluded from the outside world. The workmen, with their families and servants of their own, had lived in the Theban necropolis for generations. It is estimated that the workers' village at Dair al-Medina was populated for over four centuries and in the years of Ramses' reign was home to more than 500 individuals. In his book, Ancient Lives, the story of the pharaoh's tomb makers, historian John Romer estimates that there were approximately 60 tomb workers in the necropolis at the time of the strike. Each of these workmen was paid in wheat rations, as we have seen. A workman's monthly ration, called a car, would feed about 16 people. The rations of scribes and foremen, or chiefs, were at least a third larger than that. In light of these numbers, Romer argues that the reduction in the grain ration, and the inability of the pharaoh's officials to pay it on time and in full, was in fact evidence of a financial squeeze on the tomb workers, rather than a real threat to their ability to eat. What lessons does the history of these ancient strikes by the workmen of the necropolis hold for us today? What makes the actions of these workers identifiable as a strike? Through the account of Scribe Amenacht, we are able to see the formation of the workers into an organized group with collective goals, while other accounts of life in Dair al-Medina chronicle individual clashes between workers and administration officials, it is clear that in the case of the disruption of grain rations, the workmen banded together to express their grievances. The appointing of spokesmen to negotiate with officials presages the emergence of organized worker unions in the modern era. It is interesting to note the reactions of the necropolis officials to the strike. The initial sympathy of the Medje Montmos to the plight of the workers and his endorsement of the strike action points to the possibility of solidarity between working and administrative classes. On the other side of the equation, the identification of scribe Amenacht with the officials rather than with the workers, as well as the confusion as to who was responsible to remedy the situation, the mayor of Thebes, the vizier of Egypt, or local officials, foreshadow some of the difficulties in class formation among workers. The late payment of grain rations impacted the scribes and foremen as much as it did the tomb workers, but they took it upon themselves to attempt to quell the strikes rather than joining them. Finally, it is important to note that the strikes were primarily economic in nature. The workmen were protesting a reduction in their wage by withholding their labor. As we move into the modern era, strike actions will often be defined by the nature of the grievances at hand, both economic and political. Next week, we will explore the occurrence of a strike for political rights, the secessio plebis of ancient Rome. Join me on Tuesday as we jump forward from 1170 BCE to the 5th century BCE and the early days of the Roman Republic. Thank you for listening to Strike a history podcast.
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, ghosts and goblins are going door to door to gather up candy. But did you know that some of that candy is made by union workers? In Hershey, Pennsylvania, tagged the sweetest place on earth, you'll find the nation's chocolate center. It wasn't always so sweet for workers, though, who in 1937 tried to win union recognition. Then the company laid off some of the union organizers, claiming it was due to seasonal cutbacks. Outraged, 600 workers began a sit-down strike in the plant. Local dairy farmers, relying on Hershey to purchase their milk grew increasingly angry at the strikers. They joined with workers not participating in the strike and other community members. The angry mob stormed the plant to oust the strikers. 25 strikers were severely beaten and the sit-down strike ended. But the next year, the Hershey workers tried again to form a union. This time, they affiliated with the Bakery and Confectionery Workers International Union of America and established Local 464. They are not the only union members who help make Halloween sweet. Today, Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco, and Grain Millers Union Local 1 in Chicago, Illinois, makes Tootsie Rolls. If your candy of choice is Clark Bar or Thin Mints, you might want to thank the members of Local 348 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Local 125 makes Giardelli chocolate in San Francisco. Unfortunately, things are not always so sweet. In September of 2016, 400 workers at the Just Born Candy Factory in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania went out on strike. The company decided to change their pensions to a 401k for new hires and reduce health care contributions. They make such iconic candies as Peeps, Mike and Ike's, and Hot Tamales. One strike slogan rang out, no pensions, no Peeps. Speak your mind. And besides, do something about it. Don't just sit there and moan. Of course, the boss may persuade some poor damn fool to go to your meeting. And act like a stool, but you can always tell a stool, boys, that's a fact. He's got a yellow streaker running down his back. He doesn't have to stool. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app. Pass it along. That's how Solidarity works. Leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Thanks to Sarah Graham for her wonderful podcast, Strike a History Podcast. Look for it on your favorite podcast platform. Today's music was Talking Union, written by Pete Seeger, Lee Hayes, and Millard Lample. You've got versions by the Almanac Singers, Woody Guthrie, Joe Glazer, and stay tuned after the credits for a very special version by Pete Seeger, who explains the origins of the song. Labor History Day is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmenovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor of History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history. And see you next time. But out at Sunny Acres, here's what the fact. 
And in New York City, here's what they found And down in Memphis, here's what they found And up in Garrett County, here's what they found That if you don't let stool pigeons break you If you don't let race hatred break you If you don't let vigilantes break you up, you'll win What I mean, take it easy This song was written by Mill Lampell, Lee Hayes, and yours truly, Peter Seeger, in the spring of 1941. That was the year that Henry Ford was being organized into the CIO. And Woody Guthrie had taught the three of us the old talking blues. You know, if you want to get to heaven, let me tell you what to do. Got to grease your feet in a little mutton stew. And I think Mill, it was, thought of paraphrasing that. And Lee added a verse, and I added a verse, and suddenly we had the song almost completed, except that we hadn't found any solution. We'd All we'd done is add up the problems that we hadn't found how to solve any of them. And about a month went by, and one day I was sitting up on the roof and realized that uh, there was only one solution to it, the old one of stick together. So I made two verses to end it off, none of them rhymed, and that's how the song Talking Union was born. Now you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. Got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong. But if you all stick together, boys, don't be long. You got shorter hours, better working conditions. Vacations with pay, take your kids to the seashore. Cause it ain't quite that simple, so I better explain just why you got to ride on the union train. Cause if you wait for the boss to raise your pay, we'll all be waiting till judgment day. We'll all be buried. Gone to heaven. St. Peter will be the straw boss then, boys. Now you know you're underpaid, but the boss says you ain't. He speeds up the work till you're about to faint. You may be down and out, but you ain't beaten. Pass out a leaflet, call a meeting, talk it over. Speak your mind. Decide to do something about it. Cause the boss may persuade some poor damn fool to go to your meeting and act like a stool. But you can always tell a stool, though that's a fact. He's got a yellow streak running down his back. He doesn't have to stool, you know. He'll always make a good living on what he takes out of blind men's cups. Well, you got a union now. You're sitting pretty. Put some of the boys on the steering committee. The boss won't listen if one guy squawks, but he's got to listen if the union talks. He'd better. He'll be mighty lonely one of these days. Suppose he's working you so hard, it's just outrageous, paying you all starvation wages. You go to the boss, the boss would yell, before I raise your pay, I'd see you all in hell. Well, he's puffing a big cigar, feeling mighty slick, thinks he's got your union licked. He looks out the window, and what does he see but a thousand pickets, and they all agree, he's a bastard. Unfair. Slave driver. Bet he beats his own wife. Now, boys, you come to the hardest time. The boss will try to bust your picket line. He'll call out the police, the National Guard, tell you it's a crime to have a union card. They'll raid your meeting, hit you on the head, call every one of you a goddamn red young patriotic. Moscow agents, bomb throwers, even the kids. 
out in Detroit, here's what they found. Down in Pittsburgh, here's what they found. Down in Bethlehem, here's what they found. Out in Frisco, here's what they found. That if you don't let red baiting break you up, if you don't let stool pigeons break you up, if you don't let race hatred break you up, if you don't let vigilantes break you up, you'll win. What I mean, take it easy, but take it. <laughs> 